Bibles with me, please, and turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, it's in the New Testament. We're a couple weeks into our new series on Break Out to the Joyful Mind of Christ. If you pull an outline out and turn it over on the back, it's inside those worship folders, and that's designed for you to use now if you'd like. And then even maybe even more importantly, when you're at home for your own study. But turn over on the back. You see we're in that second section. First section was on partnering. And that was about our mission or about our service. You know, how do we partner in the ministry of the gospel? But this second chapter is on imitation. And it's imitating Jesus and a few other examples that we see at the end of the, uh, end of the chapter of Christ-minded living. And so our mindset here is one of submission, I think. And i got to tell you, uh, and I, I've told you a few times before over the years, there are certain passages of the Bible that... Um, I'm really just, I suppose I'm never worthy to teach God's word because I'm imperfect. But Philippians chapter 2 is one of those passages in the Bible, folks, that is really holy ground. Okay? And I want us to be prepared for that. I, I really do. I'm not trying to be melodramatic. I'm just, we capture one of the greatest statements of who Jesus is in this little passage of Scripture. And so I, I really encourage you to be ready and, and to stay focused, um, even with my inadequate attempts to uh, challenge us, encourage us, and explain God's Word together. So take those outlines, now turn them over on the front. More importantly, go to Philippians chapter 2. And this is the imitation chapter. In this first 18 verses, we're called to imitate or to follow the attitude of Jesus, to imitate the attitude of Christ. And we're called to move away from self-importance or self-centeredness, right? And in Paul's day and in our day, we struggle with that. So, the Apostle Paul starts and he says, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion. And Paul is using kind of a linguistic or rhetorical device the way he's saying it in the language he writes in, it's not if, perchance, maybe you have this. He's saying, this is a linguistic way in his language, is saying, since you have all these benefits, since you have encouragement, since you have comfort, since you have fellowship, and since you have tenderness and compassion in relationship with Jesus. That's what he's saying. So he wants us, and I put on your outlines, to express the benefits of relationship with Jesus. Since we have all these benefits of relationship with Jesus, this rest follows. Okay? That's the beginning. Since we have all this, why don't we, since we have affection and relationship and love and fellowship and unity with Jesus and we get to serve together, since we have all these benefits, these beautiful things, he says... Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. So since we have all these things, he says, I complete my joy through your unified attitude, is the best way to describe it here. That like-minded thing is really this sense of the attitude that we have, this inner state of what compels us and what controls us and what defines us, 
You could call it that mind of Christ thing that he talks about in Philippians. He says, make my joy complete, or complete the joy through a unified attitude. And look, look what that looks like, having the same love, having, uh, being one in spirit and in purpose. And on your outlines, I put it this way. We complete joy through our unified attitude, and that's reflected in our love, our character, our affections, and our purpose. So Paul kind of starts, and he says, you've got all these benefits of relationship with Jesus. Complete joy through this unified attitude expressed in your love and your actions and your purpose. And he goes on and he says, for example, and this is that moving away from self-importance thing. He says this, don't do nothing, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And he uses very strong language here. He, and, and that selfish ambition, it's kind of this grasping for me in this vain conceit that focuses on me and who I am and what I'm doing and what I've done. He's not saying, hey, just take some baby steps away from that. He says, take a big leap away from that. And he says, do absolutely nothing. Very strong language out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. And each of you should not only look to your own interests, he assumes that we tend to take care of ourselves, sometimes there's mental health things that that affect us, but in general, we tend to take care of our own interests, so he says, but also we need to look to the interests of others. On your outlines is that we broaden our sphere of concern. And sometimes our bubble just surrounds me, or maybe it just surrounds me and my wife, or maybe it just surrounds me and my family. And Paul says we need to move away from the self-centered living and expand out our sphere of concern. Someone put it this way. He said the popular idea that we should put ourselves first goes all the way back to the fall. Unsafe people in Paul's day did not view humility as a virtue any more than most people today do. I mean, it's not real popular to talk about humility, is it? It's like, oh, great. He writes, Paul was not advocating an unrealistic view of life. He was not saying that we should view everyone as better than ourselves in every way. His point was that we should view others as worthy of more consideration than we give ourselves. So Paul starts with this moving away from self-importance and self-centeredness, and he calls us to broaden our sphere of concern. And so the question is, who will I include in my new circle of consideration? If I'm called to move away from self-centered life, who am I adding in to my sphere of concern, my sphere of consideration? Because if I'm going to spend less time focused on me, who am I going to turn my focus toward, right? And often, you know, it's like, well, it's, you know, it's, sometimes we can fight this, and, and some people struggle with taking too little of themselves or too much of themselves. And I, I'm not sure that that's here the issue with Paul, although most of the time we, we tend to think too high of ourselves. But he says we just need to think less of ourselves in general, right? And if we're going to do that, we've got to fill in somebody else. 
Each of you should not only look to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And so who am I going to include in my new circle of consideration? And here's where it gets good. And here's the passage. This passage is one of the top dogs right here. Starting in verse 5. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And then he goes in. And he gives us some beautiful things about who Jesus is. And then from that, we derive a wonderful example. And I put on your outlines, we're called to follow the extreme example of Jesus. Look at those first few verses. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Let's talk about a few things that we learn about Jesus that you might just say, I don't see a whole lot about Jesus there. But they're big. It's like the big Christmas present, not the little ones, the big ones. Two things, I put them in a little box on your outline there. That Jesus, at his very being level, is at his very nature or essence level, is God. And he didn't have to grasp to be God. It's like, oh, I want, I want to be God, because he is God. So Jesus, at the most core level of his being, is God the Son, God himself. This is why we believe Jesus is not just the Son of God, but is God. This is one of the key passages. Who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. Fancy theological term is the kenosis, but let me just put it in, in, in plain language. He emptied himself, is the phrasing there, taking the very nature, there's that nature word again, of a servant being made in human likeness. So Jesus, who at his very essence and nature is 100% God, he takes on human nature as well. And how does that work? Don't quite understand it. We call it, in fancy terms, the incarnation. Jesus in the flesh. So Jesus, in that little box there, his nature, he's 100% God forever and always, and now he's 100% human forever and always. It's crazy stuff. But he also, notice that, he made himself nothing. He emptied himself. He poured himself out. Now think what Jesus could do as God himself. Right? He has all the power, all the strength, all the might. He has everything. He could do whatever ever he wants at will. Who's going to stop God from doing what he wants? Right? He has all the sovereignty. He's got everything he needs. And Jesus empties himself, and he takes on human form. It doesn't mean he empties himself of his deity or being God, but he voluntarily chooses to not use what he's got. He becomes less self-interested, if I'm going to use that phrase, right? Because who of all people can be self-interested and get away with it? I mean, God, right? Right? He says, you know what? I'm going to voluntarily choose 
not to manifest all those beautiful attributes of my neighbor. Who drove in a car to get here today? Right? Did you walk? Anybody walk? Yeah. Why not? Because you got a car! <laughs> and some of you live a ways away. It'd take a while to get here. You would have to left early this morning or maybe last night. I mean, why would you voluntarily give up what you got and do with less? Because it's harder. And why would you voluntarily, being 100% God, take on human form, be born as a baby, and needing somebody to wipe your bottom? See, Jesus voluntarily chooses to give up. He sets aside, I put it in that little box, his self-will and his own interests. Jesus gives up. And the amount that Jesus gives up, we can't even describe it. It's too big for us. You think, man, if I had to walk from Newburgh or something to get here to church, that would be hard. That's nothing. Compared to what Jesus emptied himself of. Okay. So Jesus, 100% God, 100% human, and he empties himself, he sets aside his self-will, and his own interest. So, oh boy, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider with God, uh, quality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, that's that emptying, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. We're called to go lower through service. And service isn't even a strong enough word for it. We're called to go lower through being a what? A servant. I came across an interesting little list. Um, A helper helper helps others when it's convenient. A servant serves others even when it isn't convenient. (laughs) A helper helps people that he or she likes. I mean, I, I do that, right? A servant serves even people that he or she dislikes. A helper helps when he or she enjoys the work. A servant serves even when he or she dislikes the work. A helper helps when the circumstances are convenient. A servant serves even when the circumstances are inconvenient. A helper helps with a view to to obtaining personal satisfaction. Oh boy, that's often true. A servant serves even when he or she receives no personal satisfaction. A helper helps with an attitude of assisting another. A servant serves with an attitude of enabling another. It's interesting. Jesus, by his extreme example, calls us to go lower through service. He also calls us to go lower through obedience. Look at verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death even death on a cross. So we're called to go lower, not just through servanthood, but also through extreme obedience. And how much obedience, even obedience, by example, Jesus was obedient to death, even obedience that costs us our life. Now, Paul just can't talk about Jesus' humiliation, as theologians talk about it but he wants to talk about Jesus' glorification. So he reminds us, and so he just jumps off into this beautiful uh, image of who Jesus is. Verses 9 to 11, look at that. 
Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every spiritual being, every human, the ones that are dead and awaiting judgment, the ones that are still alive, whether we've accepted Christ or rejected Christ, you name it, at one point or another, angels, demons, you name it, everyone that has a will and can respond in some intellectual or intelligent way, at one point or another, will bow and confess that Jesus Christ is God himself. And every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. If that's true, do you believe that's true? I believe that's true. How about you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're gonna, if, no, you're probably not going to say it right now. Right, yeah. um, if that's true, then right now we're called to go lower also in worship. It's not just about service and obedience, but it's about us going lower through worship and worship of Jesus. What will decreasing look like in my life? What will decreasing look like in my life? Someone said that humility is that grace that when you know you have it, you've lost it. I like that, right? The truly humble person knows himself and accepts himself. He yields himself to Christ to be a servant, to use what he is and has for the glory of God and the good of others. In others is the key idea in this chapter. The believer's eyes are turned away from himself and focused on the needs of others. You see, what will decreasing look like in my life? Let's keep going. Practice your salvation in your daily life. Practice your salvation in your daily life. Last little section. Therefore, since Jesus gives us this extreme example, and Jesus is God himself, therefore, friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Remember, Paul's writing from afar, and he helped plant the church there, but now he's gone. He's in prison. He says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He doesn't say work for your salvation. The image here is work out your salvation. Hey, you've, you've received grace and mercy in Jesus Christ. Work that out. Live it out. Practice it. What's it going to look like in your life to be a follower of Jesus who's responded to the gospel? For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. You know, I put on your outlines of those first few verses. Enjoy God's good plans for you through obedience. God's, God wants us to put our faith in him and not just get saved and have salvation, but to practically live out or work out that salvation in our daily life. And what's that going to look like? You say, well, I'm not sure I have the strength to do that. And I love verse 13. Well, God, he works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. God's going to take care of it. I'm too weak. I don't quite get it all. I can't do it all. That's okay. God says I can handle it. He gives us some practical examples. Verse 14, do everything without complaining or arguing. Everybody listening? That's whining or winning, right? Complaining is whining, arguing at its basic level is, I want to win this. So stop it. 
Everything we do, let's just stop the whining and winning. Let's stop the complaining and arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which when we work out our salvation, you'll shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. He says, in order that I may may boast on the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor for nothing. He says, live out visibly as a child of God. Let it be known. Practice your salvation as you imitate Jesus and you go lower. You don't hide in a corner. You let people see that you're living in a visible, shining way, as he says here. <clears throat> in, in the world, not pulling back, but you're living in a world that's crooked and, and depraved, yet you go in it and you live out the practice of your salvation. And you offer the word of life into the, into the lives of people. Final little section, verse 17 and 18. It says, hey, you gain joy through loss. And he calls us to spend ourselves in sacrificial service. Look what he says. But even if I'm poured out um, like a drink offering on the sacrifice. Remember they offered a bull or a ram or a sheep. And then they pour wine on the altar too. And the wine symbolized a life being poured out as a sacrifice to the Lord. And they pour out a drink offering, a liquid offering on the altar. He says, but even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering, as my life is being expended as a sacrifice to the Lord, and eventually it gets empty. Even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul says, you know, we gain through losing, and we're called to spend ourselves in sacrificial service. I want to talk a little bit as we close what this looks like, and I'm going to use a few props to help us. Um, i got to get ready. Because uh, I think Paul's teaching us something crucial. Let's, let's say this little cup represents our joy, okay? And we all kind of want joy or pleasure or happiness. And yet we see this example of going lower in sacrifice and service and this extreme example in obedience to death. And let's say that this is um, ways we think to get joy. And there's some water in here. And we might want um, money. And maybe we want uh, youth. And maybe we want, um, I'm going to write fame on here. Maybe if we just had the right house or land. Maybe just the right relationship. And, And just the right amount of, I hope I don't drop this, success. Okay? You think think of anything else? Trucks, yeah, trucks. <laughs> what else? Happy yeah, what we want—the uh, marriage that's just perfect. You, you know, where you go home and say, "Wow, isn't this great?" Right? 
And here it is. We could write all sorts of other things. We could put selfish ambition and vain conceit on here. That's from, right from that passage. And here's joy. I want that. I gotta fill my joy tank. It's only a limited supply. I'm gonna grasp for it. And you notice there's only room for my hand. Reagan, you can't come up here because there's only a limited supply of this stuff and I want it and, and you can't, you can't, you can't, and if you try, I, I'm going to hit you back because this is mine. It's hard to get. And I want to feel my little joy tank and, and if I do that long enough and if I, I grasp and, and keep at it, eventually... I'm going to get my little measure of joy, maybe. Then what happens? Life shows up. Man, my relationship with my spouse kind of stinks. Man, I, I got cancer. Uh, Mom's dying. Man, I got a lot of bills from Christmas time. Hey, Man, I, I'm not as successful as I wanted to, but wait, wait a second. My joy's draining out. Ah, ah. You see the problem? Right? It's a problem. Don't act like we don't live like this. And it drains away. Selfish ambition, vain conceit, ambition, uh, success. Jesus says, I want you to give it up. I want you to pour it out. I want you to empty yourself. And I want you to pour it and pour it and keep pouring and keep pouring until that's gone. But you say, wait a second. I'm still leaking out. Still got a problem. Jesus says, that's okay. Your definition of joy is a little too weak. I got a lot more for you. And as you pour out, Guess what I got? I got me, he says. And he says, I got me. And he says, it just keeps coming. It just keeps coming and coming and coming. See, we're filling our joy with the wrong thing. I think what chapter 2 is saying is it he calls us to pour out this because this won't last. I've been a pastor a long time. I'm 51 now, you know, I can say that, honest. And I know a lot of you really well, right? And we spend a lot of time trying to fill our little joy tank and then it leaks out the bottom through suffering, through pain, whatever. And Jesus says, no, it's, um, it's me. 
And he calls us to pour that out and pour him in. I think that's the message of Philippians chapter 2 in those first eight, 18 verses. Last question. How does my route to joy need to change? You understand what I'm asking? What is the route to true joy? Is it this? And I just got to plug those holes in that stupid little cup? Or is there another route that I need to investigate truly? Right? Not just as kind of a funny, goofy illustration, but as a true application of Philippians chapter 2. Father, um, our route to joy needs to change.